Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. I'm Ken Eppins, Founder and CEO of Orbit Guardians. Hi, I'm Raphael Rodkin, Founder of E2MC Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. So Mike Brown got on my radar recently because he was in a photo at Stanford with Steve Blank, who you've probably heard me wax eloquently about as one of the greatest tech startup guys to follow in terms of methodology, Secretary Mathis and Joe Felter from a innovation and great power competition class they were all working on. And I got very interested in that, reached out to Mike. I thought, gee, I'll have to connect with this guy, but no, it turned out we were already connected, which is good feedback. It means my networking process is working. <laughs> it's doing its job. But let me give you a little bit of a background on, um, on Mike here. So. During the 90s, he was the CEO at Symantec and Quantum Corporation coming into the early 2000s and that. These are big companies. He was the past head of the Defense Innovation Unit, which you'll hear me find out about in uh, the interview, and I want him back on later to talk about that. That's really key. He's on the board of advisors of uh, several organizations. He's a visiting scholar at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. That's the Steve Blank connection. And a partner at Shield Capital, so he understands investment. And he's also run, you know, $100 million companies. So here's a guy who ran one of the companies that was voted one of the best places to work in America. You gotta love that. I really wanted him on to talk about what he was taking away from the innovation and great power competition class and when i reached out to focus with him he said well what about the role of commercial technology and great power competition and i was like huh yes <laughs> that is it <laughs> that is the topic and then the second thought i had was well wait what else other than computer chips is there under that category of commercial technology and great power competition so let's have him on Really excited to have this discussion. Mike, welcome. So Mike, I saw a picture of you with Steve Blank, Secretary Mathis, and Joe Felter, and mm -hmm. you were doing um, maybe a class in a course that you're teaching on innovation and great power competition. And I was like, aha, <laughs> I gotta meet this guy. Um, <laughs> you had already been connected with me on LinkedIn, but we'd never talked, So, um, but that was right. convenient. So I reached out and you were like, yeah, very, very, um, very pleasant to, to connect with. So I appreciate you coming here today to talk about this. Um, the role of, of commercial technology and great power competition. It's not a thing I know a lot about. The, the first thing I think of when I think of commercial tech is computer chips, right? Sure. Um, but, and I go, well, that that can't be it. <laughs> the only thing that's, that's in that category. What else, if we're defining commercial technology, um, do we include under that umbrella? Well, you're spot on, guy. Semiconductors in general are kind of ground zero for the commercial technology competition going on with uh, with China, but it is a much broader set of capabilities. So I'd include AI software, cyber software, autonomy, which uh, is a kind of general category for drones, which we're seeing used to great effect, uh, obviously in Ukraine right now. 
commercial space. We're now in an era where companies like SpaceX, Blue Origin, Capella Space, Maxar, Akai360, they're all participating in a space-based economy. Uh, and we're not reliant on the government uh, being the only developer of technology as we were when uh, NASA was sponsoring the Saturn V rocket going to the moon during my childhood. So now there's a whole commercial ecosystem to rely on. And of course, you see NASA relying on both uh, Blue Origin and uh, uh, SpaceX as they're planning the next uh, set of manned missions to the moon, the Artemis program. Mm -hmm. So all those categories would be examples of commercial technology uh, with military applications also. And I'd have to say what's changed over the last 50 or 60 years is that if we go back to that earlier time frame, the heart of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, most of the technology that the military was using was developed by the military. Mm -hmm. um, so it wasn't coming out of a commercial uh, ecosystem. But if you fast forward uh, to today, most of the technology, in fact, by numbers, uh, 11 out of 14 technologies that the CTO of the Pentagon says are critical for national security, 11 of those 14 are being developed in the commercial world. So the Pentagon is uh, in a mode now where it really needs to rely on what's being developed commercially rather than just um, sourcing it, developing and sourcing it itself. And if we go all the way back to the chips where we started this conversation, uh, the military really created the semiconductor industry. Uh, it was really the space program and miniaturizing electronics for nuclear weapons that uh, really created the set of semiconductor companies that uh, that we know today. Of course, fast forward to today, the military is probably 1% of the worldwide uh, consumption. Mm. So that's what happens as these technologies become widely diffused throughout the global economy is the military applications, while very important, uh, tend not to be the largest uh, consumers. Okay. So that's that's new to me, uh, despite me being in the field and learning what I can. There's a lot I don't know. Um, <laughs> you know, I, in the last couple of years, I read about the history of DARPA, and which has been called ARPA a couple of times. <laughs> they mm -hmm. just cut the defense part off the front. And a lot of the technology that I was astonished, actually, that a lot of the technology that flowed through ARPA or DARPA turned out to be what we saw, like the drones, right? They were working on drones like 30, 40 years ago, right? And AI, they started becomes, working on the 1960s. Right. And so that that is definitely under that military firewall. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm reading about things in the 60s or the 70s where nuclear missile technicians for the military would go to a six month training program, which which seemed astonishingly long to me. Right? Like, wow. You know, and, and everything's locked behind this firewall. And now you're saying 11 out of 14 of these uh, technologies are, are outside. Um, and right. I mean, I guess AFWorks and, and other sort of incubator type things are still having a hand in funding these things. Um, so what, yeah, what if, you th if you think about uh, uh, DARPA, that's mm. really long term research. It's a, yeah. it's an in incredibly storied um, history of mm. innovation that we're using broadly in the economy today. GPS, yeah. uh, Internet, um, you know, we talked about AI. So a lot of these things started with federally funded research and often uh, with a mind towards what the defense applications might be. So still investing in technology of the future. And then there have mm -hmm. been since the creation of a lot of 
organizations that are sometimes called innovation organizations, the group I led, Defense Innovation Unit, mm -hmm. for four years, AFWorks that you mentioned, SOCWorks, there's a number of these that are really about how to connect the Pentagon with current technology that's in the commercial world. So rather than let's do the long-term research, which DARPA is still in that model, still very much needed, uh, a parallel set of organizations that are outsourcing uh, the technology that's available in the commercial world to bring that inside for use by the military. Okay. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about the DIU sometime because that's, that's very interesting to me. Uh, okay. They have an open um, solicitation solicitation. Yeah. Cause like, I remember I was talking to Dr. Gordon wrestler who's been on this show many mm -hmm. times and uh, I went to see him in Annapolis a couple of Decembers ago for a few days. So it was like, he mm -hmm. took me around the, the Naval Academy and that was really a lot of fun. Uh, and I said, Gordon, what is going on with the DIU? They've got like, you know, two or three open solicitations of things here. And he said, well, that's that's how it works. Right. So you had to educate me <laughs> that's with everybody, you know, um, that they're not they, they don't know what they don't know. Right. A lot of the time. And they just, I guess, got the solicitation open for, well, what have you got? Right. They, they that's could... exactly right. So uh, I think often uh, we think that military problems are unique to the military, but a lot of what the military is doing is the Defense Innovation Unit, DIU, shows is whether it's uh, gathering sensor information, optimizing that for decision-making, resilient communications, logistics, so many problems the military has really are problems that the commercial world has as well. So the philosophy behind DIU is, gee, if we have a problem in the military, rather than sitting down, which is what the military does, write requirements, which basically says, okay, let me tell a group of suppliers what I need, which could be designing the next sub or fighter aircraft. For these commercial technology, the military doesn't know what's out there. So DIU does an open solicitation, which means here's the problem. Does anyone have any set of technologies that will, or solutions that will solve this problem? So that open solicitation results on average 45 companies responding, hmm. sometimes as many as 150, which says, yeah, there's a lot happening in a commercial world that uh, you can use to solve these problems. Sometimes in a combination of uh, technology that two or three startups might have that will even then go to an integrator and say, great, let's use these three or four technologies and, and let's see if we can integrate them to solve the, the military's problem. Okay. I, I like that a lot. I look forward to, to having the chance to talk with you further about uh, the IU. Without, <laughs> as you know, we have a Google Doc for this and we write the questions down so we stay on the rails and inside security okay. and compliance requirements. <laughs> um, let's talk about, I guess, the, and that that is touching this, um, this the commercial development and that kind of thing. Um, what is the organizing principle for commercial technology development for great powers? What what are they thinking about um, when they're like, you know, you want to you want to overwhelm your opponent or defeat your opponent in some way. I mean, what is the scorecard for this? Well, I think it uh, in the U.S. dates back to World War II. Um, it's pretty clear that with under the leadership of folks like uh, Van Ivar Bush, who were uh, who was a president science advisor, uh, we uh, developed a model where we would engage the leading thinkers, often at academic institutions, in developing technology. And if you go back to World War II, there's a lot of incredible technology that uh, the Allies developed yeah. uh, to win the war, going back to radar, um, uh, the advances in uh, in aircraft, 
that happened in World War II, obviously the development of nuclear bomb and the Manhattan Project. So it's hard to think about uh, winning World War II without, number one, the incredible industrial capacity that the U.S. brought to bear, but also the technology that was introduced in that time period. And so the model coming out of World War II was, let's keep this going. Technology is obviously going to be important for national security. Let's continue to funnel uh, federal research dollars through our universities to advance science and technology. And basically from the end of World War II all the way, uh, you know, throughout the Cold War and even into, uh, you know, past the Cold, uh, Cold War, the U.S. was the unquestioned leader in technology. And that's been true basically until China came on the scene. Uh, the Soviets certainly made a run at it, uh, but they didn't challenge the U.S. from a technology standpoint anywhere near the degree. Yeah, they stole the formula for nuclear weapons. Mm. So uh, then we had to have nuclear deterrence as one of the strategies in the Cold War. But broadly, what the U.S. really left the Soviets behind was uh, through the development of uh, semiconductors. Okay. Uh, they never could match what we were doing there. And I think we're blown away by what we put on display in the first Gulf War, um, which really was an awesome demonstration of the ability of technology to change warfare. Everything from satellite-based communications, laser-guided munitions, uh, night vision, the list goes on and on, which is why the U.S. defeated the sixth largest army in a few days, very few <laughs> casualties. Iraq. Um, yeah. and, and the uh, Chinese Communist Party was watching that as well, which is mm -hmm. what started their quest to make sure they were not behind in technology. So I'd say the U.S. model is basically, let's continue to be at the forefront of uh, science and technology development. Let's fund our universities. Uh, let's do programs that then support the military. That got an extra boost in the uh, late 1950s after Sputnik, uh, when DARPA was formed. That's when NASA was formed. And frankly, one of the contracting mechanisms that DIU uses, Other Transaction Authority, also comes mm -hmm. out of 1958 when that was given to NASA by saying, our contracting process is too slow. We need a parallel system to go fast. That was called Other Transaction Authority. So it, it, it goes back uh, uh, some 60 years to that time period. So th that is the US model. How do we out innovate and how do we bring our academic community uh, to bear? Our private sector has benefited tremendously from that because all those technologies we just talked about, whether it's AI, uh, chip development, um, internet, uh, think about the companies that are built on those technologies that really are still uh, uh, responsible for the success that we associate with Silicon Valley and the other innovation hubs around the country. China has a very different model. So uh, they definitely see the importance of technology, but they have a centrally planned economy, not in the Soviet sense of, okay, we're going to plan the outputs of all the industries and put that in a five-year plan, but let's use market incentives to provide the right signaling, uh, but we're going to decide at the top of the government, what are the industries that we care about and want to make sure we're developing? That's where Made in China 2025 comes from, developed in 2015. So I'd say it's a very well-developed industrial policy we have some elements of industrial policy in the U.S., like the Chips and Science Act, but that's not a tool that we have historically used. Um, but China has a very top-down system. Rather than a defense innovation unit, they have something called military-civil fusion, which says that by fiat, every technology that's developed in the commercial world must be used by the military if the military sees value in it. 
So very, very different uh, mm. system that the Chinese have. And it's really a competition between our two systems. Okay. Wow. There was a, there was a lot in that answer. <laughs> you know, I, I go back to um, anybody who has not seen Steve Blank's Secret History of Silicon Valley. You need to go and see that now. Uh, it's on YouTube. And I have the slides as well somewhere. I've got a pretty link to it if you want that. Um, I might post it if I remember to post it in the notes here. If I don't, somebody tell me and I'll do that. Um, amazing information in there. And, and it could mm -hmm. well be called Microwave Valley as he jokes. Um, yeah. I, I watch that thing at least once a year to remind myself of, of what happened, right? Um, right. Second um otas i have commander uh oh geez uh tim anderson to thank for bringing that up a couple years ago to tell me about otas mm -hmm. and uh just recently i was watching something where they were talking about technology uh, innovation during wartime and the american uh lawyers did a really great job defense contractor lawyers did a great job in making sure that the um, the steps for innovation were very easy. Uh, a, a manufacturer did not have to go and requalify uh, for approval from the military or government when they changed something and right. made it better. If they had enough evidence that this was good um, and it didn't slow up contracts or anything, everybody still got paid. And this was very, very, very important and tied into what Mike is talking about here. So um, I like that a lot. Um, during peacetime, we slow all that stuff down, right? Now it's now it's okay. We've got these compliance requirements and hoops that you've jumped through, and that's why the OTA got developed, um, is what you're saying here. So, very good. What do national leaders, in your opinion, frequently fail to focus on that they regret uh, later because it punishes the nation? Yeah, I think one of the key differences between the system we have in the U.S. and uh, the Chinese system is we're much more short-term oriented. Uh, so I don't think we're thinking about national goals for the next 30 or 40 years the way the Chinese Communist Party is. So there's a lot of things about the system that, uh, that the Chinese have that I don't like. I wouldn't want to live under their police state. But Thinking about things for the long term and what you can do to better prepare yourself is, frankly, something that uh, would be worth uh, our thinking about. I've called the competition that we're in with China a superpower marathon because we are the leading powers in the world from an economic and technology standpoint. Uh, the Chinese clearly have their sights set on us. Uh, President Xi has said that he wants to displace the U.S., by the time, displace the U.S. as the economic and technology superpower, by the time the um, 100th anniversary of the PRC comes in 2049. So he's very actively working a set of activities to modernize their military, to implement military civil fusion, to ingest technology from around the world, to make that so. Uh, of course, you know, we, we have something to say about that as well in terms of what do we do to invest in ourselves but it's a very long-term competition that we're in. Uh, the Cold War was 45 years. We don't know how long this is gonna last, but it's probably gonna last beyond one or two administrations. So we have to think about, are we doing the right things to make those investments for the future? Where's our investment in technology development and science uh, for the, that's, gonna pro, that's gonna fuel the economic prosperity for the next 20, 30, 40 years to create the breakthroughs we just talked about? with GPS and the internet and AI. In fact, we were investing in the height of the Cold War, 2% uh, 
of our gross domestic product, our GDP, in federally funded research, mm. these technologies of the future. Now that number has fallen to 0.6%, and there's about seven or eight countries ahead of us investing a lot higher proportion mm. of their GDP. So that's not the posture of a nation that is going to be uh, leading in these technologies in the future. Investing in talent is another area. We've got to make sure we are investing in the STEM talent. You know, in the in the height of the space race with the Soviets, we were graduating a lot more engineers. We made a conscious effort uh, to make that so. China now is uh, graduating eight times the number of uh, graduate students in engineering or STEM disciplines uh, than we are. So we just have to think about what are these long-term uh, trends going to do uh, for us, and are we taking advantage of them, investing in the ones that will make sure we're both economically prosperous, and that's the best guarantor of national security, so that we're in the mm -hmm. best position by the time we get to 2049. So right. I think it's thinking about the long-term. Okay. Once you get on this uh, technology tiger, basically, you can't get off. Right? It's, it's an unending... Da, 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 you know, um, well, you do you get off at, at your peril, basically, yeah. an example where we got off was 5G. Hmm. So, uh, you know, let's look at what happened to Bell Labs, uh, which was kind of the forefront of a lot of technology hmm. and telecommunications. Yeah. Uh, we let that through a series of acquisitions, leave the country and go to Alcatel hmm. and basically we'd be dismembered. Uh, and so where did where was the U.S. when Huawei introduced 5G? We didn't have a competitor there. So and they the Chinese saw that as a way to basically displace uh, other Western uh, communications technologies. And whether they had done it or not, it was a path for the future for them to listen on any conversations that they would like to. Um, their laws in China made that uh, mandatory if the government ever turned to Huawei and said, we want that capability. We want to hear what happened in that conversation. So it's dangerous uh, from a, you know, economic security and national security perspective to get behind in these critical technologies. Mm -hmm. I speaking of the, the top-down kind of organization. I know I've had Dave Walker, the former comptroller of the United States, for nine years, on the show a couple times, and he's repeatedly pointed out there's no coherent strategy. There is no agreement um at the top level of what we're going to do and right. and that's there's good and bad in that um but he he would like to see a little more direction in there um and folks i we had uh a fellow on before who was the top electronic warfare man in the dod for a while and uh he mr Connolly. he moved on to um a, a private industry firm and we we had a geopolitical kind of conversation um and i was watching a speech by him in which he pointed out that the electronic warfare development just basically stopped for 20 years and for a country that relies on aerial blitzkrieg as its main power uh you know projection into the world i found that astounding i i I could barely believe it when I first heard it. Right. So these things do happen. And, and sometimes we survive them without stubbing our toe too much, frankly. Um, does speed or slowness of development matter? I think of a couple of examples of World War II where they, you know, the Germans started out with advantages in submarines and also in how they were using radio. Um, we think of the battle of the beams of, of uh, flying over, 
from from Germany to England and bombing a specific target and coming back. Now they had their own screw ups. Uh, they had misnavigation. They had orders go out that just weren't received by people. Things like that. So nothing goes off without a hitch. I think that's that's a big takeaway here. Um, but after a while, if you survive that opening onslaught, right? Um, and I think this happened too with tank tactics and things. Uh, the enemy catches up. Right. Um, and so does doesn't advantage in peacetime matter when it comes to conflict? I mean, there's no question uh, because you don't know when the next conflict is coming. Um, I think I've heard uh, General H.R. McMaster say uh, our record in predicting the next conflict is perfect. It's 100 percent wrong. Yeah. yeah. You, you just don't know when the next uh, who would have thought that uh, Putin would be crazy enough to start the biggest land war in Europe since World War Two. Um. And I hope he's regretting that that decision. So we don't know. So you've got to be prepared with the technologies you're going to need. And speed definitely matters. So if you think of what our commercial experience has taught us in terms of uh, fast cycle time, the importance of being first with new technologies, that's the way many companies in the technology space compete. It's also the same with military technology. The faster we can iterate and develop a technology, then the faster that capability improves and provides us, you know, superior performance. Yes, the adversary can always uh, catch up uh, once they see you develop something, but you need to now be on to whatever the next new technology is as well. Mm -hmm. So I, I, sp speed definitely matters and it's a compounding effect. Okay. And and again, I can think of many examples. Uh, there's a, a channel on YouTube, a naval history thing called Drek NFL. Um, and Drac is great. Um, he has John Parshall and other great guests on, authors on, um, and he's talking about everything from specific ship histories to naval logistics, how to set up a supply base, which I personally find very interesting as an operations management guy. And I was very surprised to find out that tens of thousands of other people would also find this interesting because I think they would normally think that would be boring, you know, but he, he would bring up things like um, technologies like giant torpedoes or something like that, that the Japanese developed in World War II that the Americans would have encountered in battles. And then, you know, the reports are like, we think maybe this is out there. We're not sure. Right. We think the enemy has a capability of this. And then also, I think of when you brought up with iterations in peacetime, um, the American torpedo in the 30s was just terrible and and kept failing and so you can iterate maybe but it, it might not turn out to be uh, as fast or as good as you think that it that it wants um the, the irony is yeah. we were a lot faster at iterating if you go back in our history mm -hmm. uh the 1950s for example was a phenomenal era of aircraft uh, mm -hmm. innovation and mm -hmm. we developed repeated uh, airframes uh, during that period that had all slowed down after the 1960s, after Robert McNamara was <laughs> Secretary of Defense. So he brought a big systems engineering mindset mm -hmm. from the Ford Motor Company to the Defense Department. Things need to be planned. Uh, we've mm -hmm. got to make sure we're rationalizing all these investments, which may have made some sense in the Cold War. But that slowing us down is mm -hmm. now a disadvantage. So uh, it would be much better if we were more agile and the 2018 national defense strategy actually called for this for the pentagon to be more agile hmm. in 2023 we've not completely adopted that and internalized that yet still working on that but uh going back to being able to iterate faster and get new capability to our warfighters sooner 
would be a big advantage if we think about future conflicts versus the Cold War where we're, uh, we know who the adversary is, we know the pace of their development, uh, and all of the technology is developed within the military complex versus the technologies we need to pull from the commercial world that we talked about earlier. Hmm. You have given me a lot to think about here because I've never heard of McNamara being referred to as a, as a slower uh, of progress. And that's just because I don't know enough, despite knowing a lot about the man personally, um, I would have thought that a systems engineering mindset would have been helpful um, and, uh, you know, in an organizational structure, it shows you the impact of one man it, it um, does. coming yeah. in and, uh, you know, being a Republican, being put in by President Kennedy, a Democrat, uh, because he thought it was a good idea right? <laughs> and it would appease the, the Republicans as well. Um, and and bringing that manufacturing idea and it actually slowing innovation. That's that's very, uh, very odd to me. Um I'm going to have to learn more about it. it huh. Well, he, he had a different set of problems yeah, he was yeah. facing in the early 60s. Uh, mm -hmm. He was trying to get control of a budget and make sure that the mm -hmm. Pentagon yes. had more of a planning orientation than an innovation one. Yeah. But yeah. 60 years later, what you did in 1962 may not be the best uh, right. for what we need in 2023. Right. So, right. so it isn't saying everything you did was wrong. It's just saying that was a different set of Maybe problems. Right for the time. Now we've overcorrected. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. And, and we think of airframes, uh, it's been pointed out by people smarter than me, a B-17 versus a B-29. You know, the B-29 is only a few years later, and it's a heck of a lot closer to the kind of bombers that we're using today. Um, but we're also still using long-range heavy bombers that have the same design from the 60s. <laughs> right. right. Yeah, B-52. That's yeah. right. We've got, we've got some stealth aircraft, and they're cool and that kind of thing. Um, not as many as you might think. But uh, enough, apparently. <laughs> but, but yeah, we're still relying on um, uh, on that airframe, right? The B-52 airframe um, to deliver these these bombs. Um, and so, yeah, something something clearly was slowed down. Interesting. What do you think about let's talk about dual use products and how R&D gets funded? Um, you know, you, you've, you've got your DIU background. Um, Dual use, we mean there, there's a there's a commercial use for it and a military use for it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and in this being involved, focusing on the space industry, as I have a, a space use and a, a earthbound use. Also, it can be referred to this way. Talk to talk to me a little bit about that, that process, how you've seen it in action and maybe has it changed much over the last decade or two? Well, I think uh, the big difference here is how much competition you get in the system. So uh, this is not uh, separate from the fact that there's been tremendous consolidation in the defense industrial base, those suppliers to the Pentagon. So that's gone from 50 vendors in the 1950s to now six who are uh, beneficiaries of two thirds of the procurement dollars that the Pentagon spends. It's uh, in the current budget, that's about 170 billion a year. So six companies are benefiting from that to the largest extent. So think about that as a competitive environment. It's not that competitive when you think about the range of technologies or solutions that the Pentagon is 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 buying. They have a very different model. These defense primes, which is the government pays for their R and D. If you think about a, a submarine as an example, yeah. the government's saying, "Here's what we want in a submarine." So the government mm -hmm. is saying. Here's what we'd like you to go build rather than in the commercial world, 
we have a need for something, say it's a mobile phone, and we're going to go see what the market has offered. Mm -hmm. So the difference in how those are developed is in the submarines case, the Defense Department's going to say, please build this. And uh, then the government pays for the R&D and then provides that defense contractor a margin on top, usually 10 to 15 percent. In the commercial world that we're all familiar with, uh, the company that developed the uh, product sets the price. Apple sets the price of the iPhone. I decide whether I'm going to buy it or not. And there's competition. If I don't like what they have, I can go buy something from Samsung or someone else. So that is a much more competitive environment than what we find ourselves with the military. So I think the dual use um, technologies give us the opportunity to create a much more competitive uh, environment for mm -hmm. what we buy in the Defense Department. So I'm a big fan of that. We should be buying as much um, that's dual use, that's commercially developed as possible. Congress has even 20 years ago mandated that the Defense Department buy as much as possible um, that is commercially off the shelf. We sometimes fool ourselves into thinking what we're doing is so specialized in the military, it can't be commercial. So we find ourselves uh, saying, no, we want something custom. But when we every time we do that, we get ourselves off on a unique development path that does not keep up with current technology and is much more expensive. So we need an environment that's more competitive that keeps the defense department for the 80% of technologies it needs that are developed commercially on a clear commercial path. Um, we've not done a very good job of that uh, over time. It's my hope that we will get there as we look over the next 10 or 20 years, that that's how the military will evolve. But it's a very different model. Yeah. It's one that uh, means there's a lot more competition. And at the end, that means a lot more value for taxpayers. Okay. So looking at a chart of this thing of, of um, defense investment on technology, I do not want to see a Pareto chart of a tiny amount of companies getting most of the money and then uh, right. not much going to the rest. I want to see it pretty, pretty flat. Um, yeah, it may of, not be flat because yeah. because we're not going to have 20 suppliers of submarines or uh, true, you know, uh, true. next generation fighters. But hmm. two thirds going to six vendors is too skewed. I'd like to see that mm -hmm. moving to yeah. where there's 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 more dollars yeah. going to more. Man, vendors. this is this is the kind of stressful thing that I would like to be involved in the decision making of where you've got, <laughs> gee, we've only got so many naval yards and some of them haven't produced a vessel in years. And we've lost employees with the capability to do the manufacturing. So we've got to figure it out all over again. And that doesn't take into account the the spec uh, type stuff. Right. I was I was. Right. um right out of college, I went into the power generation industry and I designed industrial gas turbine generator sets, co-gen power plants, stuff like that. And uh, that's the way we would get customers. They would send us a scope of supply and we would match up to that based on what we had um, as far as like an engine and a generator. That's the easy part with the gearbox, mm -hmm. right? The hard right. part is this. I want um, it to measure oil pressure. Okay. <laughs> how do I do that? Right. I've got several different ways of doing that. I can put in a cheap analog gauge, right? I can put in a, a digital gauge. I can put in a computer. I could put in mm -hmm. a programmable logic controller unit. Right. And, and like there's balances here and that the engineer I'm mind reading at this point, I may not be allowed to talk to that person and ask, what do you want? 
right? How do I meet this? And so I'm trying to find this balance between cost and usability and what they kind of had in mind, right? Um, in the first place, because if I show up with a dinky little analog gauge and they wanted something nice, I lose. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, if I put it in the big computer to solve the cheap little problem and what they wanted was the lowest cost, I'm in trouble there as well. So right. there's 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 this spec thing. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the John Parshall had a great uh, talk about tank production in World War Two by Germany um england or sorry america and, and the soviet union and the different ways they solved that problem and the germans were very much uh boeing airframe style location rather than an automotive plant um production facility they would have stands um and and you can just imagine the the german officers standing there right looking at this and going do i accept this unit right it's a it's a very different style right mm-hmm. uh, of production um, than what we had. Uh, so just think, yeah, thinking about capabilities and what can we actually produce, what costs and what innovation needs to be feeding into this so that we we don't produce something that's outdated the moment that it comes off the line, mm-hmm. right? Um, these, are, these are big problems. Yeah, the, the F, F-35, which is our, uh, you know, uh, most modern uh, fighter, of course, it, it's uh, kind of a multi-purpose aircraft was in design for 20 years Mm -hmm. so no one would think that if i spend 20 years designing something before i start producing one i'm going to get current technology there's no way you could forecast what's going to be current 20 years from now right and then and then what then they come off the line and what i can imagine the very first thing is a refit (laughs) oh dear we've got it we've got to you know we've got to get some of these out onto carriers or wherever right or air bases doing a job but then we've got to keep some back that we're going to pull these systems out and put something new in exactly and, what's oh, happening it just fouls up the entire thing yeah yeah oh exactly what's oh, happening now oh so, so ugly <laughs> wow let's talk about foreign investment in u.s companies um i was listening to something that said it was around 12 percent in our notes here you've got something between uh, 50 and 20 percent of foreign investment in in our commercial technology development like it's that sounds wild to me like what a way to kind of be leaning in and and you know seeing what the and hearing what the uh, opposition is doing talk to us a little bit about that is that a meaningful factor in great power competition it was, it's definitely a, a meaningful factor uh this is actually the work that brought me to spend time from, going from a silicon valley ceo uh, focused on market share of companies I was running to uh, what uh, what could I contribute to national security was this question that came from Ash Carter at the time. What are the Chinese doing investing in our early stage uh, technology ecosystem? Are they investing in venture capital? Are they investing in venture-backed companies? How much? Which kind of companies? Why? So uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, co-author a report that he basically sponsored, which uh, has the uh, very generic name DIUX report because it was written under the uh, direction of the Defense Innovation Unit, which at that time was called Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. That was the X. Um, And we discovered, uh, Pav Singh and I uh, wrote a report and discovered, yeah, the Chinese Mm -hmm. alone were in 15 to 20 percent of all U.S. venture-backed deals in kind of the mid uh, 20 teens, 2015 to 2017, which we knew that the Chinese were interested in uh, 
accessing technology, their uh, role in uh, cyber theft was well known. Mm -hmm. uh, their role in industrial espionage uh, was known at the time. But we didn't realize that they were using a lot of perfectly legal means beyond uh, just acquiring companies, which they were doing without much uh, without much concern. If you go back to the time period before 2010, uh, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., was letting many transactions occur. Uh, as we began to be more concerned about their military buildup, we started to pay attention to, gee, they're doing a lot more outright acquisitions. But this vector of investment through venture-backed companies was kind of unknown at the time. So it really brought that to the fore as one of the many techniques that uh, the Chinese Communist Party was using to bring technology back home in furtherance of the goal we talked about earlier to displace the U.S. as the technology superpower over the next uh, 20 to 30 years. So definitely a factor. In fact, it's even worse if you think about if they invested in 15 to 20%, the, the way the venture world works is you see a lot more than you invest in. So maybe they saw as much as 50% of the startups. And that means you have a pretty good vantage point to see what these, again, 80% of the technology the military would be using, what's happening on the forefront of AI, cyber, autonomy, you name it. So they were investing in the same things US venture was, and this is on the forefront of capabilities that we need for our economy and for, for national security. Even worse is thinking about the fact that if they make an investment, the US is unlikely to tap that same supplier because we're concerned about foreign ownership and control. So our military, when we look at a potential supplier, explicitly uh, looks at who are the foreign nationals who might be on the board? What investments have our adversaries made? Russia and space-based companies, China more broadly across the technology spectrum. So what an awful thought to think not only are the Chinese uh, investing in these companies and seeing what's on the forefront of U.S. technology development, but just kind of spoiling the soup to prevent the military from taking advantage of some of the best technologies. I don't know if the Chinese were that clever to be spoiling the soup, but uh, it certainly was a, a, a dangerous trend. And so that, actually, that directly led to the legislation that is called FIRMA, Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, which gave CFIUS more capability to watch for these investments. Okay, that that is fascinating. Yeah, that's I, really what brought I me in to do some government I, service. I am told that I come up with good questions. I, I can see I have to go away and come up with other good questions to have further deeper conversations. No, that's a good one. That's a, that's a very good I, one. I, I, I can see where it's going. It's it's amazing because you're, if you're China, you're not only learning what's going on, you're, you're denying access to the enemy, which is totally yeah. a great power move, right? Um, totally. I, it sounds like it's an accidental um, perverse incentive kind of to go do it, but but <laughs> wow, you know, what a, what a great thing. Um, and I know many startups are so cash hungry that they mm -hmm. don't look too carefully or care too much about where the money comes from. And I wish people would be more circumspect in how they look through these things. Um, and that can go to um, 
accidentally getting ratcheting equity clauses from uh, from nasty venture capitalists, right? Who, uh, if you don't meet your performance requirements at certain times, the uh, the venture capitalist gets more and more equity, right? Uh, most venture capitalists are quite ethical and will not do something like that. But mm-hmm. it's an example of something that happens to people who accept outside investment who don't really look too carefully because they're optimistic and and they need the money, they want the money, and they they don't look too carefully or, or think about it too much about where it comes from. So if you're interested in getting venture capital, number one, I think it's you you probably don't qualify and you probably shouldn't do it, having uh, had a whole season on that of this show. Uh, <laughs> second, be careful. <laughs> look look carefully. So. Mike, uh, I definitely would love to have you back on. Um, we could talk about that after, but I want to finish sure. up with um, Peter Z- Zihan, uh, who's him and a, a young guy, um, Roger Ney, uh, What If Alt Hist is his channel. And those two have been very, very influential to me um, lately about just creative thinking about the world and, and uh, what's going to happen. Um, Peter, Zaihan talks a lot about the breakdown of a global supply chain that is coming. Uh, first, because we're decoupling from from the Chinese economy. Maybe <laughs> it doesn't sound. Our pharmaceuticals are still manufactured mm-hmm, there. Mm-hmm. Our washing machines and our phones are still many. You know, it's like I don't know yeah. if that's going to happen or how it's happening. But um, but then also just um, with what's going on with with energy and that in in Germany and 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 uh, the supply of things you can see they're shutting down industry and so these capabilities are according to Peter going to disappear and it's it's like the the message is you better start local again right you better start manufacturing um in, internally in your own nation do you agree with that or disagree with that assessment well, I think uh, if you look at the broad trend towards globalization uh, that, you know, maybe started in the 80s and 90s, uh, where we're sourcing more of what we need for the economy outside, uh, that is definitely reversing now. So, I mean, for the U.S., uh, you know, we never got to the point where uh, imports were, you know, more than, uh, you know, 15% of the economy. Hmm. So it was never the same degree that it is for other economies around the world. But when you see that some of those critical uh, things you're sourcing, whether it's uh, you know critical minerals that uh, often come are, are processed in China, whether it's PP&E equipment during COVID, as you mentioned, pharmaceuticals, I think uh, 80% of the pharmaceutical ingredients uh, come from China. We, we What we've realized is that we're not in a, a world that's completely flat uh, that Thomas Friedman talked about, uh, because not everyone is our friend and we can't make sure those supply lines are open in the time that uh, we might be in a conflict with someone. So if you believed at the end of uh, the Cold War that you know it was the end of history, the world was going to be populated with liberal democracies, um, yes, globalization certainly made sense in that context. What we've seen since then is we have revisionist powers like Russia and China, and China does not hesitate to use its coercive power economically to punish you if you don't agree with what they're doing politically. We've seen that so many times. South Koreans uh, accept uh, THAAD, um, you know, anti-missile capability from the U.S., and now all of a sudden China's shutting off tourists uh, to uh, to South Korea, or the Australians uh, say something about China, and all of a sudden China is pulling back 
exports, mm -hmm. which are about 6% of the Australian economy. So China doesn't hesitate to use its uh, coercive power uh, to say, we're going to, we're going to punish you if you don't agree with, with our regime. So in that world, you can't say that we don't care where the supply chains are. You have to very much care. Just like you said, you need to care as a entrepreneur where your investment dollars coming from now as uh, an economy and as uh, producers of goods in the economy, we have to very much care about those supply chains. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think uh, we're now needing to take that into account. And I, I would say rather than a broad trend that we're not going to trade with anyone that uh, we need to basically do everything in the US, we just need to be more careful about where it's coming from. I don't think we have concerns about sourcing product from the UK or France or Canada or Mexico. But China and Russia, yeah, that is not smart to get your fuel from Russia if you're right. in Germany uh, right. or your pharmaceutical ingredients from China if you're the U.S. So we just have to be more conscious of that and uh, continue on a longer term path. It's not something that we can do on a knife edge. But over the long term, we need to make sure that we're not critically dependent um, on a country like China for uh, materials that we need. China's doing the same thing. They have what's called a dual circulation policy, which basically means they don't want to be dependent on the U.S. or anyone else. They want to be uh, producing things themselves like semiconductors. They have a tremendous effort underway to make sure they're sourcing their own semiconductors. By the way, they import more in dollar value of semiconductors than oil in the Chinese economy. So very important for them. They're trying to establish independence on that. And at the same time, they're trying to make sure they have uh, a lot of domestic demand uh, for those type of, uh, of commodities. Okay. Uh, Mike, many, many thoughts have rushed through my mind uh, <laughs> about well, ideas and things I could say and, and questions of that. When I watch this again, I'm going to write them down. Uh, but one of the things that I just thought of was uh, one of the last times we saw a nation try and um, be self-sufficient like that and do autarky, it was Japan. Yeah. <laughs> in the 30s right mm -hmm. and that right led to some serious problems yeah. um and a lot of deaths so yeah that that's it gets it gets tough um you know well, and again i go back to the the late 90s you know mid mid to late 90s when i got out of college and went into my first job the power generation field we were already cognizant of that you did not want um foreign supply of engines and parts right um and fuel from from nations that might not turn out to be so friendly and right. uh and i remember my first boss pointing out police vehicles were domestic right it, it, and i was like oh yeah they're not toyotas right <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. and there's there's a reason for this right we need parts uh that are that are available during wartime what were you going to say right i was going to say uh we're navigating a dangerous time and it was called out well in graham allison's book uh, uh destined for war mm. which he basically looked at a rising power mm -hmm. uh, meeting a dominant power right and what happens in those yeah. circumstances yep. and what he found was three quarters of the time there's a there's a conflict yes. a military conflict so it's it's a dangerous time we're not destined for that conflict as long as we're conscious and do the right things to uh, deter china mm -hmm. but it's a it's a dangerous it's a dangerous time right Folks, and I've seen this too. Yeah, um, a, an old uh, military power and a rising economic power. This is mm -hmm. this is the um, Germany versus Britain pre World War One kind of situation right. as well. Um, 
it, it's it's very common <laughs> and, and like mike said it results in war a lot so um it, it's scary scary stuff here mike i definitely want to have you back on let's talk a little bit about that after hopefully you're <laughs> interested in doing that i i have enjoyed this and learned so much um it's it's been a great reflection on what's happening um and and folks i think the big takeaway is that the world is not going to continue the way it has what we've been used to. And we kind of knew that because of COVID, right? COVID mm -hmm. definitely showed up some of the supply chain issues. However, one thing I want to point out about that, remember when we had that video of all those ships sitting outside like New Orleans and stuff like that, and they weren't able to come into the harbor? And that just seemed to dissipate and nobody talked about it anymore. Like, what I wonder what the tipping point was when everybody was able to get back to work and all the truckers were there and the capacity was there to pull that stuff in and get it out on the road. Um, <laughs> that was a mystery to me, right? It just, it was like a big deal and then gone, you know. Uh, have you have you seen anything about that, or did it? Well, we had a lot of it, but I had a lot of attention on that problem, including uh, from the Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. So I think as we see problems, uh, and uh, you know, people are working on them uh, to try and figure out a solution, uh, we we solve these things. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, and there's no fanfare. Yeah, there's no that, fanfare. That it got yeah. fixed. Yeah. Right? Exactly. We Which move on to the next problem. Because yeah. I think we should be celebrating those moments, yeah, yeah. I, at least for a, a day, right? And say, look, this happened, right? And it's, well, the, it's co the COVID vaccine, another one, yeah. a phenomenal mm -hmm. achievement uh, facilitated by the military. Mm -hmm. We use the Defense Production Act and uh, the mRNA vaccine came out of DARPA research. We we're talking about some of the innovations that come from DARPA. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a you know modern miracle. Awesome. Well, Mike, I very, very much appreciate you doing this. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on. What a wealth of knowledge, experience, insight Mike is. I hope to have him back to discuss the Defense Innovation Unit experience that he had. And uh, reach out to him on LinkedIn. Boy, <laughs> any organization would uh, get huge benefit from having him involved. Huh? All right, if you're a defense or space business owner, and you're getting some customers, you're getting some cash flow going, and you're struggling with operations, and you want a lot more than just an assessment, right? Pay somebody and they give you a to-do list and then they walk away, right? I talk to a lot of business owners who get that and they hate it. And they're like, well, where is somebody who can actually take the part of this to-do list, at least that's as long as your arm, and do something with it. Well, that's what Cold Star Technologies, my company, is all about. So approach us, come to us, go to the Cold Star Tech site, reach out, you know, book an appointment to speak with me, and let's discuss what's going on. And I'll tell you, <laughs> whatever we can do to help you, we will. And if there's something that's outside of our scope and experience, I'll be very clear about that as well. But we are one of the few organizations that just doesn't dump a list uh, off from an assessment and run okay we are here to support you to help you to move your organization forward so check out coldstartech.com thanks for listening to the cold star project and i'll see you next time